Great. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest podcast. My name is Nicola Wake, and it's lovely to welcome you if this is your first podcast or if you've listened to the others. This is just a little series that we're um, doing where we're talking about making clinical decisions. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Joe Crook, consultant pharmacist in paediatrics at King's College Hospital. Joe, thank you so much for giving your time today to share your experience, perhaps of a specific decision or more general your experience of decision-making in complex clinical situations and also your reflections and your learning. You're welcome. Thanks for having me here today. Great. Well, let's just jump straight in. Can you tell uh, tell the listeners, um, give us a brief overview of maybe a specific decision or a kind of category of decisions that that you you've been facing yeah so it took me a while to actually come up with a choice because actually within my role I have to make these decisions every day every week all the time so I think sometimes when you do it all the time you forget um how complex it can be to come to those decisions but I thought a good example of one that has caused a lot of chat within recent times um and it is covid related would be the use of um, any really, but I chose the monoclonal antibody treatments for COVID within children. So we've been faced really with obviously a difficult time during COVID and um, there's been a huge amount of work um, in adults to pull out the evidence-based treatment of what is the best thing to give to help people prevent, have serious disease or have to go to hospital with COVID. So obviously we know that COVID is not as severe for children. So children do not get as severe disease. Most children who catch COVID have a very mild form of the disease, don't need to be admitted to hospital um, and certainly don't end up ventilated in huge numbers on an intensive care situation. So the trouble that we faced really in practice was we had a very, very small cohort of children who did become unwell with COVID, who were admitted to hospital, who fit the adult criteria for treatment, but we lacked the evidence and the data to, to, to suggest sorry, that it would be beneficial for them. So it created a lot of discussion within uh, our local paediatric COVID MDT and also regionally and nationally about what the best thing to do for these children. And that's what I thought would be good to talk about today because it encompasses kind of knowledge, ethics. Um, Absolutely. You know, what's the right thing to do? What do we know and what's the right thing to do? I think that's 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 really true, actually. And that's often... We, those are often the really difficult decisions, aren't they? The ones yeah. where you're simply going, actually, what? It, where is the evidence? Or having to extrapolate from yeah. something that's over on one side and trying to go, how does that that work? Yeah, and quite often in paediatrics, we are, um, you know, we are from a health perspective, we are the um, patients who don't have equality compared to adults because. It's really hard to get the data in children. We don't have the numbers. Ethically, it's more difficult to enroll children in clinical trials. Um, from a COVID point of view, we didn't have the numbers in comparison to the adults. So even if we did do the trials, 
um, we wouldn't get the evidence to show whether the certain treatments were beneficial or not. Um, recovery trial was fantastic in getting the paediatric arms up and running. But again, because nationally, the numbers just weren't big enough. Um, by the time that actually we wanted to start using these treatments, the arms in recovery had started to close. Yes. So even if we wanted to use a medication within a clinical trial, because that was the right thing to do, because ethically, you shouldn't really be using novel therapies without um, an evidence base if they haven't been used in children before without a clinical trial, um, because you will be conducting your own clinical trial. For, yes. You know, so um, but by the time that we would want to use them, that arm would close. So we, we were stuck in a situation where the adults had approved treatments that were extrapolated down to 12 years. But not extrapolated down. But, but, but we didn't have any data to say, actually, we can use it in children less than 18 years. So even though things have been commissioned, we didn't have the evidence to say exactly which children we should give it to. And also from a supply perspective, at one point, we didn't know whether there would be enough to go around. So could we safely say that my 15-year-old with the same comorbidities as the adult, for example, um, so it put them in a higher risk group. So if they were immunocompromised or if they had learning difficulties, actually compared to the adults, their risk was lower. So the adults should take priority. So it was really interesting to think about, was your patient high enough risk? Was it licensed? And then actually, if I'm going to take that patient, that drug from another patient, should I be doing that? That's definitely, um, I mean, I'm listening to you, Joe, and thinking, wow, actually, that's, not, that's, that's complex. Although I can see how that can relate to other clinical situations as yes, well. Absolutely. Perhaps. When are we not dealing with medicine shortages when we're yeah. trying to think about, about the use of medicines in that way? I guess there were two sides to this, perhaps, Joe. Were you as a MDT trying to come up with some general guidance to help support the decision making, as well as perhaps alongside that being faced with specific patients coming in, being admitted or thinking actually, I need to be making a decision, but I haven't yet really had the wider discussion about general guidance. Yes. So at the time, we didn't have any guidance as to who should and shouldn't get um, MABs from a paediatric point of view, nationally or locally. Um, but there was a lot of discussion happening that I knew about. Um, so because we had particular patients who did meet the criteria for treatment, I then, one of my methods, because I wasn't sure within myself what we should be doing, um, you know, is I contacted the people that I knew would be in the know. So the good thing about COVID is it put everybody in touch and everybody, everybody worked collaboratively. So I suddenly found myself in email chains with the National COVID Pediatric MDT, which then, you know, went to international COVID paediatric MDT and actually in America they had used some maps in children before they did in the UK so it was a case of okay so who's done what so far who who's got the evidence what are the trials has it been used anywhere um, and if it has which kind of patients how old were they 
Um, and actually what we found at the time was that the MABs hadn't been used in the UK in any children under 12 um, at all. And the patients that we had coming through were actually younger than 12. So we had to then also think about, well, if we have, so the commission criteria was for patients over 12 and over 40 kilos, which were one group. But then we also had patients coming through the door who were under 12 and under 40 kilos. So what do you do about an 11 year old 50 kilo child? What is the difference between a 12 year old who's 40 kilos and 11 year old who's 50 kilos when the evidence base is zero anyway? So there was a real ethical consideration as to actually is this the right commissioning policy is yes. this the right uh thing to be doing for children should we be giving them to children at all um, certainly... and if so who are those children and and i think a, a couple of th reflections that i can hear joe is this was probably a very emotive um area yeah. to be working in particularly with that and and that can be the same for, you know, for patients in, in areas trying to get access to certain drugs. I think the other thing that's come out to me very strongly just listening to you is the strength of knowing who to talk to and knowing who to share this with. You absolutely weren't alone in this. It wasn't no. Joe on her own and not even yourself within your MDT. It's the wider network, isn't it, that you that we really yeah. need to support us with these decisions. And I think that's really worth highlighting that if you don't know, then somebody else might. And even if they don't know the answer, they're a very good sounding board to discuss what you've thought of, what you've gone through. Um, and what your decision-making process is, because um, I've always been told throughout my career, you don't know what you don't know. Yep. And actually, when I'm in that situation, I like to go and talk to people like my chief pharmacist, like another paediatric chief pharmacist or other senior uh, consultant pharmacist, and say, you know, I've got this really difficult decision to make. This is what I found out. These are my dilemmas. What do you think we should do? And actually, it isn't always down to my decision. It's, it is it is generally a group decision of what is best for that child. And depending on how high level the stakes are, sometimes we have to get the senior medical executive sign off from like a trust perspective. So I have been in situations where I have to get the lead um, consultant who is... Um, you know, the chief executive to say, mm -hmm. actually, from a trust perspective, if we do this, what are the implications in terms of equity to patient access, the ethics for the individual patient, um, but and also um, the benefit? I think also from that, I would hear that you to, to possibly you, you don't need to always talk to another expert about the clinical bits, because actually no. it's the decision making, because what you're bringing in there is are other things, equity, inclusivity. I'm I'm hearing risk benefit uh, all along the lines. We talked a bit earlier about actually if we're giving this drug for this medicine to this patient who might not be getting what they need it might be that drug or it might be how we're needing to spend the, the limited pot of money 
So from a networking and a kind of support and who you need to talk to, you don't always need to talk to another consultant pharmacist in paediatrics or some, you know. No, I think it's it's good to talk to a wide range of people and actually um, having worked at King's um, and having gone through more of these decision types because of my role um, than in previous roles, I think I have developed almost like a, a framework of my decision making. So a bit like when you're taking a drug history, I have a set criteria of the questions I ask myself when I'm asked difficult questions, to, what should I think about? Um, Joe, do you think you could expand on that a bit for, for me and for the listeners just about how that, I'm interested in two bits. One kind of, you talked a bit about your, your career and how you developed. So there's obviously the bit about how you got there, but actually a framework for decision-making sounds, sounds really helpful. Yeah, so in terms of my career, so um, I guess I've learned as I've gone along, as most people do. Um, but I have also done quite a lot of postgraduate education in terms of MSc uh, diploma, independent prescribing. And within those courses, you do learn a higher level um, of decision making in terms of relating it back to the patient. So a complex decision and then making sure that you apply it to your individual patient in front of you. Yeah. Um, And I guess it's worth saying from this decision, the thing I found the hardest was not doing anything. So for quite a lot of the patients, we decided not to treat. Um, So it was actually, you know, quite nerve wracking to also make the decision not to treat versus to treat, which is also quite an interesting thing to feel Um, yes sorry but I do have you know I find out all about the situation the patient the drug the commissioning the availability the side effects has it been used in children what's the evidence base Um, and then depending on the answers to those questions I'll then go down the line of well if it hasn't been used before and there's generally someone somewhere that's always used it before. There's only been a few occasions in my career when it definitely hasn't been used before. And if it hasn't been used before, then I need to go back to, is there a clinical trial available? Yes. Um, what's the ethical thing to do? If we can't get into a clinical trial, then generally we have to go through all the usual approvals of governance. Yes. So we would have to say, you know, why do we want to use it? Who do we want to use it for? What's the evidence? If there isn't any evidence, which is quite often in paediatrics, there's no evidence. <laughs> because it might be adult evidence um, that we're extrapolating, which is quite often the case. Um, we have to then explain why we think it would work. But then we also have to think about the risk. Yes. Um, so from a MAB perspective, what we thought about was extrapolated from adults and the number needed to treat in adults was actually quite high. And we didn't know what the number needed to treat in children was. So there was a real challenge to estimate the risk versus the benefit. So that's kind of part of my decision making is what is the risk? What is the benefit? What would happen if I don't give this drug? Yes. And if I don't give this drug, what else can I do? What is the standard of care? What would every other child get in this situation? What is the standard of care? And what am I doing that's different? And why do I need to do that? 
And if I do that, what is the risk of doing that? I think that's a really helpful framework. I mean, that's very similar to some of the work that I've done, sort of even just working in medication safety. <clears throat> it's your options appraisal, isn't it? What are my yeah. options? And one of them will be to do nothing in this case, yeah. not to treat. But actually, if I what would happen with that? What would be the the impact on your patient? And I guess also in your case, your patient's family as well. When you're working with paediatrics, it's it's not just one person that you're working with. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Can I just come back, Joe, briefly? Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about one of the hardest things was not treating somebody choosing not to give give a drug personally you're making some really difficult decisions and you're having to live with them i'd be really interested to know how you kind of help manage that yourself do you have any sort of support for when you make a difficult decision you don't just kind of close the door on it and get on with life i assume no we always have um well i always follow up patients where possible so i've had quite a few situations where I've made a decision um, and then followed up in terms of what happens. Yes. And if it's something that people can learn from, then quite often we might write it up as a case report, for example, so that people can learn from what we have done. Then we are adding to the evidence base. Um, sometimes I might do a CPD um, and reflect yeah, the learning. Quite often, I might add it to my consultant portfolio as a clinical decision evidence, and ask someone to um, feedback on my um, the way that I've managed a certain situation, so that I can. Because you're always learning, and I think each decision then adds your experience for the next decision. So, whenever I go through these processes, I then bank that experience to build on for the next. Oh, that's a really great expression, actually, to to bank it and then to yeah. that because that's exactly what it is. And reflection and writing it down does help us do that, doesn't it? And I think also if things go wrong, which sometimes it can go wrong, sometimes it doesn't, you know, yeah, you don't always get a happy ending, unfortunately, in, in patient care. Um, there are mortality and morbidity meetings that you can go to. So it's worth finding out if you have a particularly difficult case, for example, um, there might be a meeting where the consultants and the MDT meet up to discuss either at a local or a regional level to say, these are the patients that we've seen, these are the decisions that we made, and this is the outcome. And it can really help you see what other people's decision-making frameworks are but also it can help you reflect and if you've been particularly affected by a particular child or condition or decision, it can help you then to go through that within an MDT setting. Um, but quite often I'll just go and offload onto one of my colleagues. <laughs> so one of my other consultant pharmacists or one of you know my team and talk about a decision or talk about it with a consultant and say, well, actually, you know, um, because you have to make a decision based on the information that you have yes. at that time. But as we've seen with COVID, four weeks later, something new will come out and something different will happen. We'll say, well, actually, for that child, 
if we saw that child again, that actually we're going to change that decision process because we now have new information and that's the continual process that you go through. That, that Yeah, that you can absolutely go through with a lot of, and, and even not just a lot of conditions, but a lot of patients because they will change in. Yeah, yeah and the patient will change. Yeah. I think that's really valuable, the the offloading to to your colleagues, because actually, if you are in a position where you don't have access to a morbidity and mortality meeting or that's not within your framework, it's still not without your ability as a professional to go and find that yourself, to find a mentor, to find a a special, you know, a, a somebody who's used to doing this. We've been yeah. talking a bit about decision making. And I think in primary care in particular, there's a lot of making decisions in isolation, but GPs will have experience of that. I guess there's specialist nurses and other colleagues. So there should always be somebody that will have been through a similar situation, won't they? Because Yeah, and I am hoping as things um, evolve through the ICS and the transfer of care. I'm hoping that consultant pharmacists will be available for PCN pharmacists for those difficult decision makings, because why should people work in isolation? Why shouldn't they have access to, um, you know, somebody who has, you know, more experience of those complex patients? Why should it be that we're sat within just one place so I think again COVID's been a really strong uh, motivator for change and got more people talking um, especially across the divides of care and I'm really hoping that through the development of pathways that we can then share the expertise and share and you know having people working in isolation um, or if you work in an area that is a smaller town, for example, or a DGH, then it'd be really good to have those networks of experience so that people don't feel isolated and they do have someone to go and talk to if they get stuck. Absolutely. I mean, personally, I find Twitter amazing. So, you know, I'm always um, messaging people that I see through Twitter to say, oh, I saw you've done some work on this, you know, and sharing ideas and experiences. So, you know, there are brilliant networks available if people want to access them. And I'm hoping they'll only get bigger and better as time goes by. Yeah. And I think I would always say that you're, you, you've, you've said there's, that you're working in, in a large tertiary centre, but there's people working in DGHs, there's people working in GP practices. You could be in a small town in, in a big area. Everybody's got something different. There's not one network or one one size fits all, is there? We need to be we need to take hold of this ourselves and go out and, and do it and find our our own networks hopefully helped by listening to positive people like you joe joe mm. i know you and i could talk for hours and particularly yeah. this for a long time so i'm going to sort of say in the interests of time i think we need to kind of wrap this one up maybe come back to some of it in a future podcast i'll come back to you just at the very end um yeah think about what your take-home message might be because I'm going to say while Joe's thinking about that just a huge thank you to everybody that's been listening to this 
um, which we hope will have been useful and hopeful to get useful to you in your practice. We would hope that um, you could get in touch if with feedback about this series. This is a new thing for us at SPS to be looking at this. And maybe you've got a story, a clinical decision that you'd like to share. Um, just get in touch with us. So, Joe, a take home message. I think my take home message would be to phone a friend. So don't feel like you're stuck on your own. Make sure you ask for help if you get stuck. And the best way to learn is to go through your decision making with somebody who is um, senior to you and just ask for feedback. So to have that, um, have that feedback loop so that you can uh, learn and develop um, because over time you will just develop a framework uh, to really benefit your practice. So, yeah, those would be my top tips. Phone a friend, have a, a baseline framework for when you're asked these difficult questions. Um, and, yeah, get involved with MPPG if you love paediatrics. I have to mention the MPPG. You managed <laughs> to get that plug in at the end. Absolutely. Yeah. So a huge thank you, Joe, for sharing your experience and your expertise with us on behalf of us in SPS and those who are listening. And just a quick thank you to my fabulous admin team who have been keeping this right behind the scenes. And uh, bye for now. Thanks. Bye.